My name is Will Small, and I'm trying to become the man my kids need me to be. To my fellow men, I think we've all got some work to do. What if it's time to rebuild what we call manhood for the sake of ourselves and the generation growing up behind us? It's not always easy talking about the real stuff, but we can't afford not to. So let's get into it. This is the Mankind Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Whilst this podcast is primarily aimed at helping men like me to process what it means to be a healthy man in the contexts we find ourselves in, when it comes down to it, so much of what it means to be a healthy man is just about being a healthy person. Now, I totally get that gender roles and expectations are realities that we all have to wrestle with to some extent. I'm obviously a big believer in talking openly about some of the elephants in the room when it comes to manhood. But some conversations bring us back to the reality that any of us who get a shot at life on planet Earth have a short time and we can easily find ourselves wasting it. It Sounds cliche, but it's an incredible gift to be alive and sometimes we only realise that after being reminded how fragile it is. So this episode is about surviving. It's about second chances. And my guest, Amanda Giles, is incredibly qualified to speak about these things. She's a coastie with an incredible story worth listening to, the kind of story that can reorient our perspective and our priorities. It's a story of suffering, loss, frustration, but it's also a story of resilience, survival, and hope. Really, you just need to listen to it. It's really different from any other episode I've ever done on this podcast. But I'm so grateful that Amanda shared her story with you and me because maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe you've been living on autopilot. Maybe it's time for that to change. Well, Amanda Giles, it is a real privilege to be able to sit and have a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for your time and uh, just your generosity with being willing to share your story. You do have a story or many stories to to share that are pretty unique. But how about we just start before we kind of get into that unfolding story. Could you just share a little bit about where you grew up and some of those kind of early memories? I grew up in the um, hinterland of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It was a fruit and dairy farm. We had a herd of goats. So quite unique, not really something that uh, a lot of people understand. Um... It was, it, it was a great way to grow up, um, lots of um, family support, but um, I was bullied and victimised as a kid. So uh, that was a tough way to come into the social realm of um, just being, being, you know, the one that stood out, the one that um, just didn't fit. Mm. So I think that um, gave me a lot of challenges to start off with, um, where I think when I grew uh, in, into my teens and, and adult life, I was quite introverted. Didn't ever put myself out there because I felt safer. But yeah, I think um, the family life, the farm, uh, that that was a nice way to grow up. But a lot of hard work. Yeah. Um, very meagre um, lifestyle. Uh, we had everything we needed. My parents worked really hard for that, mm-hmm. um, but never really had the 
the newfangled things, the, the, the hot fashions. So it sounds like there was some uh, an interesting mix of like probably a lot of natural beauty and, and kind of the simplicity of life in kind of a, a rural setting, but then obviously some, some early wounds with some of that kind of bullying and yep. stuff that should never happen but leaves a mark. It does, but um, something that my dad always taught us was you can always find a way through something. You can always find a way to resolve a problem. Um, you can find a solution. You just need to look for it. Yeah, wow. When my husband Craig first met my parents, we were visiting and Dad said, come on, Craig, I need to build a shed. And Craig grabbed his wallet and keys to head off to the hardware store and Dad said, what are you doing? And he goes, well, you know, we've got to go and buy what we need. And he goes, no, mate, we just take the chainsaw and everything's on the farm already. And that was a new concept for Craig, who'd always grown up in the city. Yeah. That um, you just find a solution. You just, mm. you just work something out. It sounds like right from your early days, there's a level of resourcefulness and resilience and kind of just a, an attitude of being able to overcome and work with what you've got in any situation. Yeah. I'm probably foreshadowing a little bit of your story, but it seems like those are some attitudes that have really set you up to be able to sit here and tell your story in the way that it has unfolded you know, in ways that maybe some people it would have been a bit different. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So obviously this podcast is um, partly about, you know, what it means to be um, to be a man and sort of examining some of the cultural norms around manhood where we need to maybe challenge those. For me, this is motivated by being a dad of two little boys. I want them to be able to grow up and just be good humans really. Um, and uh, I see some of the boxes that the world already wants to fit them in. And I'm just wondering if you think back to those early days, were there boxes that you saw that like a, a man or a woman kind of had to fit in when they grew up? I think my family experience growing up was kind of outside the box in the first place. Most of the kids that I went to school with, their parents had day jobs um, or their mum was a, a work-at-home mum. So I think the concept of the the farm life and having to you know do chores when you got home, just being part of making everything work, I think that was kind of outside the box to start with. Yeah, wow. All right, so let's fast forward a little bit in your story. When we had a chat previously, you told me that there was a bit of a turning point when you did meet your husband and start your own family. Tell me just a little bit about that time in your life. Um, meeting Craig, I think, opened up a a world of opportunity and experience that I had not previously allowed myself to see. I had had lots of acquaintances, but I never really opened up fully to really communicate with with people. Um, there were, you know, a couple of special people along the way that obviously you do make personal connection with, but on the whole, it was fairly isolated existence. Um, meeting Craig, he is quite social, uh, quite outgoing and very um, enthusiastic and optimistic. So he will look at a problem and see a dozen ways to approach it, uh, you know, ways to see through it, ways to, to make something work. So meeting him and forming that instant relationship really opened up a different way of looking at things for me. A big part of your story is, um, you know, sort of some significant health challenges. And uh, I'd love for you just to maybe walk me through, I guess, part one. And we'll kind of go through some of the different unexpected events that have unfolded. But what was the first hurdle that you faced in that area? 
with my health, um, the first real challenge that we faced was when um, our second child was um, about a year old. I started experiencing really severe pain in my head and neck. I'd been back and forwards to the doctor, to the uh, hospital, to the physio, to try and resolve what the what the problem was without actually ever having identified what was causing the problem. Which I imagine would kind of create two problems. You got the, the challenge that you're dealing with in terms of your health, but then the uncertainty, the not knowing, like that's its own difficulty, right? It is. Um, and especially when you, you're balancing young children as well. Yeah. Um, Renee was four and Shona was, well, she was one when it first began. So, yeah, it was um, challenging there. I mean, Renee was at, um, at daycare and preschool, so um, I had Shona. She was a very attentive baby, as it turned out, um, and when I would need to lie down, she would just grab her toys and sit on the floor beside me mm. um, until I was up and, and moving again. Um, Renee was just posturing herself to be around where I was just to, to make sure that, you know, I was there and everything was okay. I think just the, the pressure of not really understanding what was going on but having that underlying problem, you just do what you can to, to keep the balance, keep things moving. Um, it was at a, a New Year's party. Um, I was nursing Shona on my lap and Renee was beside me and I scratched my ear and when I did that, I realised that I was having trouble hearing out of my other ear. I went to the, to the doctor shortly after that and, and said, you know, there's something wrong with my hearing. He referred me to an ENT who very thankfully was thorough and he didn't take no for an answer. I had taken Shona with me, foolishly, to my specialist appointment and thinking it would only be, you know, five, ten minutes as you normally do with a, with a specialist but um, after an hour, he said, I've checked everything that I can and can't find a reason for the hearing loss. There is a rare possibility it could be a tumour on the nerve, mm-hmm. um, but we'll need to do a, a scan to, to check that. Um, so he, he booked that in and my instant thought was, nerves are tiny, how big could a tumour be? So it didn't particularly worry me at the time. But on the day of the scan, um, we had got the kids up early and, and packed off. My appointment was 7.30am. So Craig sat in the waiting room with the girls and I went in and in the MRI there's a, a glass wall with the, the technicians on the other side and it started off it was the technician and the nurse and after a short while I could still see on the other side of the glass but the number of people watching the scan were grow- was growing Right, and they were milling around and and looking perturbed. After half an hour, they inject a, a contrast dye to um, do a, the final set of scans. And at that point, um, a doctor came and introduced himself and said he was the head of radiology, and they believed that they'd found the the reason for the headaches, mm-hmm. which was the first trigger for me because at that up until that point. I had not connected the hearing loss with the pain that I had been experiencing. After the scan was finished, um, Craig went to work. I took Renee to school. She just started kindergarten mm-hmm. and then headed home to have a rest. Mm-hmm. It hadn't been a big morning. Yep. 
Um, but by the time I got home, there was an answering machine message from the ENT saying, please come back, bring the scans with you, we need to talk. So we did the reverse trip, met up and, and went. And that was when we got the news that there was a tumour the size of a large orange in the right cerebellum, wow. which is the nerve centre in the brain. And he said um, the way that it's grown and developed around the nerves, there's, it's going to be very complicated to remove. Um, so they need to move on it immediately. And I had to go to hospital that same day. Wow. It was a very full-on day. Very Absolutely. No time to think. Um, it was just bang, bang, bang. Here, here we are. Do you remember what you felt within you hearing that news or was it just kind of a blur at that point? To be honest, I think everything was just a little overwhelming at that point yep. because we'd been on the go since five in the morning with getting the kids ready and, I don't know, parents would understand this. Any time you take kids out, it takes ages to get everything ready. Oh, 100%. <laughs> so I think... Um, by the time we'd got to the afternoon and I was admitted to hospital, I hadn't really had time to process or think. Mm. It wasn't until later that night when I was alone in the hospital room. That was the first time that I really had time to reflect and think about what was going on. So you, you find out this crazy news, assuming the size of an orange in your brain, um, what what did they kind of indicate to you were your options or the chances of successfully dealing with that? The surgeon was brilliant. He was really kind and attentive, um, very precise. So he was the sort of person when you talk to him, you have confidence in what he's saying. Mm. He gave me the news that um, it was really touch and go. <laughs> and to hear that from someone who spoke so clearly and precisely, it gave me a pretty clear indication of what they were ex expecting. Um, the news was grim. Um, they said the way that the tumour had grown was in and amongst all of the, the nerves that they would have to slice very precisely to remove it in very small increments but they said in their expectation there was no way they could remove the tumour without causing massive damage. Their experience was telling them that I would be most likely um, definitely blind in one eye, maybe two, that I would be deaf in one ear, that I would not be able to control the oesophagus, um, which is also going to affect your ability to eat and speak, um, that I would lose my balance, um, that I would most likely have to be fed straight into my gut. Um, it was pretty grim. Mm. He said if I survived the, what they anticipated would be a 12-hour surgery, that they could probably give me five years to spend with my young family. And that was their best estimate. It's, it's very hard to actually process something like that. Mm. And 
at times like that, you really draw on anything that you can to try and make sense of what's going on around you. Mm. Um, For me, my faith was what stepped up at that point and there was a, um, a passage in the Bible that I had read, with long life I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. And I sat in that bed and I questioned God and I said, but God, I wouldn't be satisfied living like what they described. Mm. And he said, I know that. And to me that was like a promise that I was going to have a life that I'd be satisfied with. And I knew that I knew everything was going to be okay. The doctors met with me over the next several days um, leading up to the surgery, which was a week after I was admitted. And I think they kept coming back and re-explaining the surgery and making it sound that little bit more severe because I think they thought I wasn't processing it. I think they thought I wasn't um, accepting what -hmm. was going on because I wasn't panicked. I wasn't distraught. Mm -hmm. But to my mind, I understood what they were saying. I was processing what they were giving me. But larger than that, I trusted God. And I think... Every person needs to find an anchor somewhere in their life, something that holds them steady. Mm. For me, that's my faith. You hear this crazy news, you're sort of at the end of your rational or normal sort of way of processing the world. And you'd you'd sort of, it's like before that point in time, you'd been kind of laying some foundations without knowing it. I think we all do that, right? If we we get into a position where um, we're kind of knocked out of our default way of operating there's kind of this question of what narrative, what story, what kind of deeper resources have we been laying in place? And that might look different for a lot of different people, but it's sort of like you discovered some of the foundations that had been there just quietly and until you see them when you see them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to look different in everyone's lives because everyone's life experience is that little bit different. But I think unless you can find that, that mm. anchor point that keeps you steady, that keeps you firm, something that you can have faith and, and hope in. Mm. I think that's fundamental. Everyone needs to find that themselves. Yeah. And sort of what I'm hearing as well is you're not going to find it in that crisis moment. That crisis moment is going to reveal what that is for you. That's right. So the question becomes how do we lay some foundations in the more normal times? So I can imagine, you know, this story kind of going one of a couple ways at this point in time, Um, but it probably doesn't go the way that I'm anticipating. Yeah, what what happened? What happened when they did the surgery and what kind of news did you get afterwards? So we went into the surgery expecting that surgery would be 12 hours. They anticipated that I would be in intensive care for about six weeks and then in the neurosurgical ward for probably around six months before going to a rehab unit to get back on my feet. The surgery was 12 hours and that did go as they expected. What they didn't expect though was how little damage they did during that surgery. Seeing the looks on those surgeons' faces, it was like kids in a candy store. They were just dumbfounded couldn't believe that um, they were seeing the responses that they were seeing, that um, I had a gag reflex, that I was, you know, lucid and um, 
not talking, obviously, because I was on a respirator still at that point. Um, but that morning they uh, took me off the respirator and actually moved me from uh, the ICU to the neurosurgical ward the same day. So I'd had, you know, maybe six hours instead of six weeks. Wow. <laughs> instead of the you know, six months in the neurosurgical ward, I was on a, a patient transfer going to a rehab unit um, on the morning of the sixth day. Wow. After this massive surgery. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was hard going. There was a lot to recover from. I had daily um, speech and physical therapy to get me up and moving again, get me talking. Um, but I was back at work three months to the day from the day that I was diagnosed, mm. which was not something that was even in the realm of possibility from what the experts were anticipating. Yeah. So at this point in time, you're probably thinking, well, that's my brush with those kind of experiences done with. I should be should be right now just to cruise on. <laughs> you shouldn't have too many of those in your life, right? Well, it's the kind of thing that you don't really see coming, but to see it coming more than once, you'd go, definitely not. Yeah. So what happened? I started experiencing pain in my head again, um, not wanting to take any chances. I went straight back to the, to the GP. They checked it out and the tumour had grown back, but this time had grown down my neck. Um, so it was in the, the brainstem. The surgeon, when we met with him, said, there's absolutely no way I would do that again. He mm. said, we cannot believe the result we got last time, there's just absolutely no way we'll, we'll risk doing that again. Mm. So I instead went for uh, three months of stereotactic radiotherapy where they, they map the, the tumour with a computer mm-hmm. and they administer a super high frequency radiation to the tumour exclusively. There were um, a few deaths in the the other unit that was operating alongside the one that I was in. Um, But I, again, came through that. And anyone who has been through any form of cancer treatment would know it's no picnic. Mm. But, again, I came through that. And I think the level of support that we received from just unexpected places... Uh, really was humbling to see the the level of care and support that came from people in our community, Mm. um, from people that I worked with. Uh, It was staggering for someone who had never put themselves out on display for anyone to see. Um, I found that so difficult to be on the receiving end Um, But I think seeing how it impacted people um, who were able to to help in some regard uh, brought hope, I think. Mm. And I think for anyone who struggles with vulnerability, struggles with putting themselves out there, when you have to, it opens up Mm. things that you couldn't see see coming that actually help other people 
I think it's intrinsic in our nature, in our build-up, that we want to help. Mm. We want to give. We're very um, community-based creatures. Yeah. And I think people want to be able to give. They want to be able to be important to someone else. Obviously, your story is an example of that. And we see that when bushfires happen, you know, bushfires at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we see how much people just want to help when there is that opportunity yeah, to right. help. Yeah. Um, we saw beautiful examples of that through the horrendous 2020 COVID, you know, lockdowns, um, people sitting out the front of their houses, sort of meeting their neighbours, sharing a meal over the fence, doing things to help people on their street. It's, it's you would not wish the tumour or the bushfire or any of these things on anyone, yep. but it's amazing that it can activate that part of us that you're speaking about that wants to connect yeah. and connect in a way that helps other people to feel known and loved yep. and valued. Mm. You got through the, the second tumour experience. I mean, how long ago was this? That was uh, 2003. 2003. Okay, so 18 years later or something. I'm not great at maths, but we are sitting here having this conversation. And uh, according to both of those experiences, maybe that shouldn't be the case. That definitely shouldn't have been the case. Yeah. yeah. But then you had another pretty significant and horrendous thing happen. You share about that? In uh, 2012, uh, my daughter and I were on our way to meet my husband. And a driver coming in the opposite direction just suddenly veered right and hit us head on. He hit our car with such force we were propelled eight metres sideways off the road into a ditch. Mm. Um, It took emergency crews over two hours to cut me out of the wreckage and police found Craig and met with him and said, Look, I'm really sorry, but it's highly unlikely that your wife is going to make it out of the, the vehicle. Mm. Um, your daughter is okay. She's injured, but she's okay. And she's really going to need you. So get yourself together, take your daughter with you, go to the hospital. She's going to need you. Craig heard that news and immediately got on the phone and spoke with people that he trusted to pray and then he set off to the hospital. He arrived and he pestered the emergency team there saying, you've got to let me see her. And they eventually did and he came into the operating theatre and just put his hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be okay. Everyone's praying it's, it's all okay. And I think that was the moment that Craig had that peace moment, um, similar to what I had with the cancer. That was his moment where he just knew. Surgery was pretty tough. Um, I have a four-day window, so everything I know about that is what I've been told. But I had um, 18 breaks in the bones in my body. I had internal injuries, puncture wounds. I've got 
metal plates and and screws mm. bolting things back together. They didn't use any plaster casts. So days after I was taken out of ICU, they had me out of bed and walking around on two broken legs. I remember the first time that they got me to walk from my bed to the door of the uh, hospital ward and it was such an accomplishment walking, what would that be, three metres? And then they said, okay, now we're going to walk back to bed and I burst into tears Uh (laughs) because the effort it had taken to walk that far was just mind-numbing. Yeah. Um, It took um, probably the next almost three years to recover to a point where I could live life not quite as as it was but to live. Mm. Um, I was back at work part-time. I was still in intense pain. Um, Three years on, I was still on pretty intense um, medication. So much so that when we travelled, I had to have medical clearance certificates that I had with me in my hand luggage to get through customs. Um, I had to carry um, information with me that um, would ensure that things wouldn't be taken away from me, (laughs) Um, that I would be given um, the the support that I needed. Mm. I think the, the toughest part of recovering from that was reaching a point where I could forgive. Mm. But I think, again, it was a one of those moments where it was one of those things from your past, one of those foundations that you've laid years before. And I felt like God spoke to me and said, when your kids were little, you never punished them if they made a mistake. You only punished them if they willfully disobeyed, if they did something they knew was wrong. And that, to me, was just a light bulb moment. Although the guy who hit me that day in the car, he made a monumentally, ridiculously stupid decision to bend over and pick up his cigarettes off the floor while he was doing 20Ks over the speed limit. Mm. But no matter how stupid that mistake was, it was a mistake. He never left home that day intending to hurt me. Mm. He never left home that day thinking, how much damage can I do to somebody else's life? It was a mistake. And it was that realisation, which was something that we had raised our kids on, that helped me to let go of that bitterness and that Resentment. Mm. The fellow who hit me lived two blocks from my house. So having seen the police report, I knew where he lived. Mm -hmm. And I drove past his house often when I'd be going out somewhere and I'd see him in his front yard playing with his kids. Mm. And I resented the fact that he was living his life as though nothing ever happened. And I was getting around on a walking stick. Um, 
struggling with daily activity. And I think that light bulb moment of remembering about how we treated our kids when they made a mistake really was the the pivoting point to when I really started to recover. Mm. I think not really considering what it would be like to live my life in constant bitterness. I, I was just doing it. And that bitterness poisons you. Mm. If you can't let go and allow yourself to heal, if you hold on to a resentment or hold on to a bitterness, it doesn't affect the person that you're angry with. It only affects you. And at that point, it had been two and a half years after. Mm. So I'd carried that for such a long time. And the feeling of release when I realised that that was what I was doing, it made so much difference. Was, was that a... Was that kind of a, a one moment thing or did you find that you had to do it again a few times? Like was there kind of a, a real moment of relief or multiple returns to that process? I think humans are a bit that way where you do just return to things, you mm-hmm. fall into it. But I did have to keep reminding myself and every time I would have that little bit of anger bubble up, Every time I'd feel frustrated or or annoyed, I'd force myself to remember that he didn't do it on purpose. And because that's something that we had decided with our kids, um, it did bring it back because it was a lifestyle choice. It was how we had decided to raise our children. It was only fair that I extended that same grace to this guy Mm. who made a mistake. Well, Amanda, if anyone deserves to ever be called a survivor, that uh, title would certainly apply to you. It's amazing what your body and and your mind and and your spirit, you know, have been through. And I mean, your husband must just have nerves of steel at this point. But, you know, part of the reason I, I wanted to have your story shared in this context is I think that a story like this, whether we hear it in somebody else's, you know, situation or we go through these things ourselves, these kind of brushes with our, the fragility of our existence, they can kind of reorient us and the way that we live. They can kind of open our eyes to some of the, again, those foundation pieces. So in some ways your story you know, it's, I've said at the beginning, it's brave of you to share it, but it's, it's a gift for those of us who haven't experienced the same thing to be able to kind of consider what it might do for us. So how are the ways that surviving those various near death, you know, experiences have reoriented and reshaped your day-to-day life at this point? I think um, I have a, an appreciation of what possibilities lie ahead. Um, A few years ago, Craig surprised me for my birthday with a voucher to 
recertify for scuba diving, which was something that I had introduced him to when we first met and something that we enjoyed in that first couple of years when we got married. But it was something after all the challenges of life that I had faced. I thought I'd never do that again. But the thing that I have taken out of all of those experiences is make the most of the opportunities that are in front of you. Mm. Take a chance. Do something that makes you happy. Do something that brings you joy. Make the most of the opportunities that are in front of you. Mm. Um, Take a chance and and do things. Do some things that you would not possibly have thought about doing before. Open up and share an opportunity with somebody. Um, If you've not been a person who can openly start a conversation, give it a shot. Like coming here today, speaking with you, it's not something that I would normally have given myself almost permission to do. Mm. But I think there's a responsibility when you've been given a second chance in life to share that and help other people to make the most of the opportunities they've got. Yeah, I think if you can if you can help somebody else to overcome through something that you've experienced, then it's kind of like a a rite of passage. You know, you've made the way. Lead someone else through so that they don't fall through the same pit holes. They they don't have the same um, problems that you went through because somebody's been before them. Somebody's shone the the torch on the path and said, mm-hmm. no, don't step there, step over here. Yeah. Avoid that hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. I've spoken today with um, somebody who their work is largely in the area of suicide prevention. I've also spoken to someone who runs a um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre. And now speaking to you, it's sort of like the common thread of all these conversations is we live kind of with this illusion of reality, like, and then certain things like they kind of break the glass and they take us to the, to the deep places, the real places where we actually realize that those conversations where we're honest, those moments where we look at the opportunity in front of us and we come out and and be real. And sometimes we need these incredibly difficult, horrendous things to be the wake up calls I'm sitting here as the person who hasn't really had the personal experiences of any of those three areas, the same level as each of you have, but it's kind of, I can lean into this and choose to hear the the invitation to wake up and look at my life and live more honestly um, within myself, as well as within my close relationships, my family, my friends, um, you know, for all of us to almost just like, yeah, live a notch deeper because that's actually reality and often we live in a false reality just that everything's cruising along and fine and so yeah thank you for that reminder having a little epiphany moment hopefully (laughs) other people listening to this do before i bring this conversation with you to a close amanda i just want to ask you a few kind of just little rapid fire 
questions and I'd be interested given everything you've been through, maybe how your sort of single sentence answer to these questions reflects some of your experiences. Is there one um, essential part of your daily routine at this point in time that you think keeps you kind of healthy and focused? I think love the people around you and open yourself up honestly. Mm. It creates great opportunity for growth and development. you have any practical ways that you do that with people you have in your little circle? As I said, I was um, bullied and intimidated as a kid. So I don't really put myself out there much. But I think I try to speak as much as I can. Um, but I think in honesty, it's having a couple of people close to you that you can have those conversations with, you can be honest with, that you can have them stand beside you and say, hey, pull yourself together. Mm. Uh, if you could go back and have a conversation with your 18-year-old self, what would be your single kind of sentence of advice? I think be true to what you know. Don't hold back because you're afraid. Just step out and do the things that you know you should give it a, give it a shot. Mm. And if your 80-year-old self was sitting next to you on the couch there, come back from the future... What would be one sentence you would want to hear from them? What would be one thing you'd want your 80-year-old self to say to this version of you? I think it's probably a similar message. I think maybe I'm a slow learner, but I think step out. Be, don't be afraid. Make the most of the opportunities in front of you. Hmm. If you could recommend like a book or a podcast or a film to the listeners of this, it's just like essential to listen to or read or watch during their lifetime, what would that be? Quite honestly, I think the thing that has really got me through most of the problems that I've experienced in life is a deep relationship with God, knowing that God is beside me. I suppose in that regard, it would be find that anchor, find that, that meaning in your life that gives you that level of strength, that level of confidence and stick with that. Mm. What would be, you know, if you could give a recommended next step for people listening to this based on our conversation, what would be that little next step you'd encourage people to take or do? I think all of us have had situations where we've been wronged, where we've been set aside, where we've been cheated of something knowing the difference it made to me in releasing and forgiving, I think that's something that I would want to pass on is let things go. Don't waste time saying, why me? Mm. Focus on what you can do to improve your situation. If that's forgiving and moving on, forgive and move on. That's good advice. All right, I want you to finish two sentences for me and I don't want you to overthink it. So just finish the sentence however feels right. The first one is, I am. I am very happy to be alive and enjoying seeing my family grow. Mm. And finally, we are. 
we are looking forward to a future where we can enjoy our lives. Lovely. Thanks so much, Amanda, for sharing with me and uh, my listeners today. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Will. This podcast has been proudly brought to you by the Central Coast Council and produced by Lead by Story. Music is by Josh Corkill with editing and mixing from Rowan Parry. I'm your host, Will Small. If you got value out of this conversation, then give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with someone you think would benefit from it. We get to decide what it means to be a man in the places we find ourselves. So let's make it kind, compassionate and strong. Catch you next time on Mankind.